Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. O God, unveil your truth to us. Show us Christ. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is our habit of late to be walking through the book of Hebrews. We go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in this second chapter, which of course follows on from the first chapter, the first chapter all about Jesus, him being the creator of everything and the inheritor of everything. He's the heir of all things. And the main point that the writer is bringing to us is that Jesus is superior to angels. Various Old Testament scriptures are cited And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we have a therefore, and we understand this whenever you see a therefore, always try to find out what it's there for. On the basis of all that's come before, this is now the result, the ramification, the thing that must be known and understood. Therefore, this. Therefore, what? We ought to pay attention. It actually says, pay close attention. And then it says, we must pay much attention closer attention. The message is, hey, listen up. Wake up. It's vital. You get this. Don't miss this. Pay close, very close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Last time we talked about the danger of drifting, and it's a nautical analogy. Drifting occurs when you're out to sea in the context of a boat or of a ship. And drifting occurs rather gradually, many times imperceptibly, and it occurs not by something someone does, but by something that they don't do. It occurs without any effort, because no effort is involved in drifting. And drifting is a failure to be anchored. 
a point made in chapter 6 of Hebrews, the anchor of the soul. Again, let's remind ourselves, drifting happens not by doing something, but by failing to do something. And someone can be around the church and around ministry and around uh, those that are very active in the church, and they can be very active themselves in the church, and yet have never anchored themselves in the hope of Jesus Christ. Case extraordinaire is Judas Iscariot, who was an apostle of Christ, and yet Jesus made it clear he was never the real dude, never the real thing. He was a demon, according to Jesus in John chapter 6 and verse 70. Everyone else was fooled by him, but Jesus never was. But he was very active in ministry and yet never a true follower of Christ, according to Christ. Drifting is not something we're very aware of because of its very nature. We tend to think, I'm okay. I haven't yet committed myself to Christ, or if I've said a prayer back yonder, I'm good. I'm good to go. But we saw last time, someone with true faith will endure in the faith. The nature of saving faith is one that will endure. We're called to endure. We're told to endure. We must endure. And when God gives true faith, the good news is he's the author and the finisher and the perfecter of that faith. He that begins the good work in us, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If I'm the author of my faith, I'm in trouble. But if Jesus is, if it's the real thing, it is Jesus who's given me that faith, he's the author, and he will see me all the way home. He does not lose any true sheep. He never has to report back to the Father, we lost a few in Phoenix this week, it's been a bad week. Never. He secures the salvation of the sheep, and never one of them is lost. We know that from many, many scriptures, John 6 being one of them, where Jesus said, my will here is to do the will of him who sent me, and the will of him who sent me is that I lose none of all that he has given me. I can't imagine Jesus failing to do the will of the Father. We talked last time about three components of saving faith. In Latin, just to impress your neighbors, uh, notitia, we get the English word notice from it, that's information. A notice gives us information. A census, which means I believe the information, I ascend to it. And then the last one, fiducia, which means trust. I rely, I put my trust in what I believe. It's interesting, as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, we didn't cover this last time, the Bible speaks of demons that believe. But we understand that they don't have saving faith. They don't have redemption. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one. You believe in one God. Monotheism. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder and tremble. If demons were given a theological test, they do very, very well. They know the true God and they know of Jesus Christ. They know who he is. In fact, the first to recognize Jesus in his earthly ministry were demons. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus said, shut up or be muzzled. Uh, polite Jesus as he was. So, in many, many ways, the demons have the first two components of saving faith. They know the information and they believe the information. They don't have the last essential element 
Fiducia, trust. They're not relying on Jesus for redemption. They believe, but they tremble. They hate everything they know is true. They know it's true, and they believe it, and they hate it. So that component, that trust, reliance, is essential to have true saving faith. And I want to ask you, is that true of you? Do you have true saving faith? It's like a chair. You can believe that there is something called a chair. You can believe that, in fact, something before you is a chair and believe, in fact, that if you sat in it, it would hold you up. It would support you. But the question is, have you sat in the chair? It's not true faith until you sit in the chair. So, verses 1 through 4 in our passage here is the first of five passages in Hebrews of solemn warning. And three reasons are given why this message, the message of Jesus, is vital and is ultimate in importance. First of all, verses 3 and 4 speak of the fact that it was the Lord himself who gave it. It was confirmed by eyewitness, personal eyewitness testimony. And then God supernaturally attested the message with signs and wonders and miracles, both through Jesus and through the apostles. Hebrews, many believe, I'm one of them, believe that Hebrews is a sermon. It lasts about 47 minutes, 48 minutes, if you're, if you're reading it. Um, and he called it a brief message. That gives me hope. <laughs> but we know this about sermons. Not everybody who hears a sermon are true believers. Not everybody, I, I, I would never assume that everybody here is a true believer. And so the writer of Hebrews, understanding that, calls people who are in and around the church to have true faith and not to drift. I want to ask you, is your life marked by drifting? You don't realize how far you've come away from something that you almost came to, that you may have looked at for some time, but have you come? Have you come to Christ in reality? The question then becomes, well, who will heed these warnings? The answer is God's people, God's sheep, God's elect will heed these warnings. As there are warnings around a precarious roadway, around a mountain, uh, proceed at your own risk, those kind of warnings. It is good to proceed if you know there is risk and then heed the warnings when they're given. Guardrails are there to tell you where land is, where it's safe to drive and where you will die, where you will perish. I've been on such uh, roadways in Switzerland and it was a harrowing experience. I thank God for those guardrails. But I'm alive because I heeded the warnings. Have you heeded? Have you heeded the warnings? This first one is so, so important. God uses warnings as a means, a means to the end of keeping his elect sheep. Have you trusted? Have you trusted? And are you trusting now? If not, you're drifting and you're in mortal danger. Mortal danger. The good news is the saints, the, the sheep, the true disciples of Christ persevere because they are preserved by Christ. And that's why when they come to glory and understand the realities of heaven, their credit is all to Jesus, not to him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He bought us. He redeemed us. They don't sing songs about their saving faith because even that was God's gift. Praise the Lord. 
Rick Phillips writes this, to drift away is ultimately to invite the judgment God will inflict on those who neglect his saving message in Jesus Christ. End of quote. So true. Are we in danger of neglecting this message? I think too it's worth pointing out that verses 1 through 4 is something of a parenthesis. You could basically put brackets around the beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 4 because what is taking place is the writer is still on the same theme as he comes to verse 5. Jesus is superior to angels. And then verses 1 through 4 of uh, Hebrews chapter 2, the parenthesis, and then he gets back to the subject of angels, Jesus being superior to them. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels, there he is getting back to this subject, this theme, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, the implication from the context here is that in the world to come, it's not angels who rule, it's Jesus who rules. And God will subject the world to come to Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will not be the case that uh, angels have that prominence. It's not angels, it's Jesus. Do you realize this? Jesus is the ruler of the future world, the world to come. There is a future age, but for us, as Christians, it's not altogether future. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5 talks of those who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It's as if that which is in our future, the age to come, breaks in on the present in the life of the believer. That's what happens when healing takes place, divine healing takes place. You know, in heaven there'll be no healing services. No need of healing services. Everyone will be well. Everyone will have good eyesight. Everyone will be able to hear. Everyone will be out of wheelchairs. Everyone will be functioning perfectly in a glorified body, those that are Christians, those that truly know Him. And uh, therefore, I believe Jesus bought and paid for that aspect of the redemption, the redeeming of our bodies. Now, He is Lord over when it happens. For some, it's in this world, but for many, it isn't. Some people who are in wheelchairs today will be in wheelchairs no matter how hard we pray for them. And that is simply the case. Those with uh, physical, uh, grave physical uh, handicaps and mental handicaps, they, they are awaiting resurrection bodies that thankfully will be free of those limitations. Thank God. Yet, sometimes God breaks through with the age to come where all are well with bringing of healing in the now. We taste of things to come in that sense. In the meantime, have you noticed? We faced dangers, trials, woes. And that's something that's going to be addressed. The woes of this world is going to be addressed very shortly in this passage. But verse 5 speaks of the fact that it's not angels that govern in the world to come. It's something and someone else, the Lord Jesus. Then verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. I've looked at other translations. The King James Version says, but one in a certain place testified, saying, the NIV, but there is a place where someone has testified. 
the NASB, but one has testified somewhere saying. I wonder if you gain comfort from the fact that the writer seemingly didn't know the place, the location. You ever quote it? There's a verse out there somewhere. Um, You're in good company. The writer to Hebrews, I think, shared that uh, anomaly. It was not normal, but he didn't seem to know. Now, the answer to this is the someone was David, and the somewhere was Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. I wonder if we could hold our finger, hold a place in uh, Hebrews and go to Psalm 8. The entirety of the psalm was uh, read earlier in our service. Let's go back there. Psalm 8. Let that be something of a comfort to you. You know, you may not be able to quote chapter and verse. Um, We assume he didn't. Uh, The writer didn't know. But bear in mind, too, people in the first century didn't carry their Bibles around with them as we do. They would have to go to the synagogue to find a scroll. Not like we who can have access to it, not only in our pockets, but on our phones today. I want to say this, too. The point, though, is not the location, the precise location. The point that the writer is making is not, oh, I'm sad here because I can't relate to you the the place and who said it. The point of the quotation is God has said this in Scripture. That's the point. So, going back to Psalm 8, the quotation in Hebrews is found in verse 4. But going back just one verse in Psalm 8, we read verse 3. When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And that is the quotation we find in the book of Hebrews. What is in view here is in light of the vastness of the heavens, God's heavens, your heavens, in light of the vastness of space, how insignificant man appears to be. You ever felt that? Going to the Grand Canyon can make you feel small. Looking up can make you feel small. Looking at uh, documentaries on space and the size of space can make you and I feel mighty, mighty small, insignificant. And yet, as vast as the heavens is, God still cares for us. God cares for him. God thinks of him. God is mindful of him. One translation reads, God cares God cares for us. He visits. He literally, a good translation would be, he checks on him. God checks on him. Man is made in the image of God, unlike anything else out there. Male and female are both made in the image of God. Made to reflect him. Made to be in that dignified status of an image bearer of God. Then it reads, or the son of man. Do you see that? Or the Son of Man. That's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself when you read the Gospels. His favorite self-designation. And there's some background to that title. I believe Jesus did everything on purpose and he continually called himself the Son of Man. Now, prophets were called the Son of Man. 
So is Jesus referring to himself as merely a prophet? Ezekiel was told many, many times, Son of man, Son of man. Ezekiel 2 verse 1, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. On and on we could go, citing verse after verse where Ezekiel, one prophet, is called Son of Man. Did Jesus merely want to point out the fact that he was a prophet? Well, there's another description of a Son of Man found in the book of Daniel. In fact, let's go there, the book of Daniel. On from Psalms to the right. After Jeremiah, there's a little book called Lamentations. And then is um, Ezekiel and Daniel. Daniel's what we're after. Daniel chapter 7. And this is worth us looking at. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 9. Jumping into this passage for the sake of time. Hopefully not taking it out of its context. Verse 9, Daniel 7, 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its bodies destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And the rest, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Picking up in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So there's the Son of Man, and then there is the Ancient of Days. And to him, that's the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Interesting. So we look at this, gone to verse 14. We need to ask ourselves the question, when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, did he mean, I'm a prophet? Or did he mean, I'm something to deal with because I'm the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7? Someone with divine attributes. Notice, he comes in clouds. He comes on the clouds. And his dominion will not pass away. You're in Daniel, go back to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And in both of these two references I'm going to bring to you, we're talking about God Himself, Yahweh. Psalm 104, verse uh, 3. He, and in context it's Yahweh, the Yahweh of verse 1. O Lord, Yahweh my God, He, verse 3, lays the beams of His chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So again, I believe a reference in Daniel 7 to Him coming on clouds speaks of Him in His divine nature. 
he comes and clouds are his chariots, rides on the wings of the, the, the wind. And then on to the right to the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, once again, Yahweh is in view. The God, Yahweh. Look with me in verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt, behold the Lord, and it's again Yahweh here, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. There's a case to be made that when someone comes in the cloud, namely God, it's speaking of a coming in judgment. More on that, I'm sure, in another teaching. But in Jesus using this title, Son of Man, I believe he's deliberately vague. People had to decide for themselves who he was. And this coincides with Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 when he asked his disciples, what are the, what's the talk out there? What's the buzz on the street? Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the reaction was, well, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But in being deliberately vague, he was leaving it to people to decide for themselves who he was. Verse 7, we're back now in Hebrews chapter 2. Hope you enjoyed that brief discussion. We're back. Verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. When you're in uh, Psalm 8, you can check, as you've already read, the ESV relates it as a little lower than the heavenly beings. Were you to read the New American Standard Bible, a very good translation, it actually reads this, a little lower than God. Well, there's a big difference, isn't there, between God and angels. What's going on here? Where it's the Hebrew word Elohim should be familiar to us as students of the Bible because you encounter that word in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God, and it's Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So as we go through our Bibles, we find the word Elohim is used of uh, three different peoples. First of all, God. Secondly, angels. And thirdly, judges. Angels. Why would they come under this designation of Elohim? Well, they act as God's authority when they're messengers of God. They are agents of God and carry with them God's authority. So we can understand it in that sense. Likewise, judges. They act as God's representatives, interpreting God's law, so that when they're doing things God's way, according to his word, it's as if God's in that courtroom speaking through the judge. Just as God is now speaking through angels in Scripture, and they have the weight of God's own authority as they speak the words of God. Now, it's clear that the writer of Hebrews understood Psalm 8 verse 5 as referring to angels, which is why he quotes it the way he does, quoting from the Greek uh, Septuagint, I'm sure. Then we go on. You've crowned him with glory and honor. I believe, again, this is a reference to Jesus. Though Psalm 8 seems to be talking about man in general, what the writer of Hebrews does is say, but in particular it's talking about Jesus, and he has been crowned. 
wonder if you catch that. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords now. He's not coming to be that. He is that. He is coming to be revealed as that, but he is that now. You've crowned him with glory and honor, verse 9, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Do you read that and kind of wonder about it? Putting everything in subjection under his feet? Because this is spoken of as being past tense. He's been crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Everything is under his feet now. You remember the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New is Psalm 110, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how uh, excellent is thy name. That's Psalm 8. Psalm 110 is, sit here till I make your enemies a footstool. Sit here where? On the throne. Till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Everything's under his feet. How can he say this? Well, thankfully he explains. Let's continue reading. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. In other words, I'm doubling down. It's under his feet. It's under his feet. It really is under his feet. What? Everything. Everything. Two mentions of everything in verse 8. You can't miss it. Everything's under the feet of Jesus. And he left nothing outside his control. Do you know when we come to the New Testament, Jesus himself affirmed this same thing about himself. After his resurrection, Matthew 28 verse 18, in the Great Commission, he said, All authority has been given to me, not will be given to me, has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Do you realize this? Jesus is king of America. He's king of China. He's king of Russia. He's king of outer space. You name the planet. You name the star. Jesus is king now. Uh, That is deduced from the phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's why we can go. Why can we go into all the world and preach the gospel and tell folk the wonderful good news? Because there's not a place your feet will go that Jesus doesn't already own. I've been in China. Jesus owns China. I've been in Mongolia. Jesus owns Mongolia. I've been in India. Jesus owns India. And Jesus owns Peoria and Surprise and darkest Scottsdale. He, he, he owns it all. <laughs> I say that because I don't think anyone is here from Scottsdale. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> that he rules over Scottsdale. Yeah. Amen. Now we love people from Scottsdale, we do. <laughs> Amen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Wow. We're not just serving a future king. We're serving the reigning king. He rules now. Allow your eschatology, your view of the end times, to incorporate the fact that Jesus isn't coming back to be crowned. He is crowned, thank you very much. He's Lord now. 
And every eye will see him. And every, one day every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he's ruling now. Praise the Lord. Heaven, earth. I can't think of anything left out of that statement. Earth, that's everything you and I can see. Heaven, that's some things we can see and some things are beyond sight. And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in both realms, in both spheres. I'm so glad we don't serve some high-ranking lieutenant who can't always get things done. You know, you speak to some people, you call because you need your computer fix, and you know, uh, you think, can I talk to someone who can deal with this? Can I talk to someone who can make a decision? Can I speak to your manager? And you go up the line, you get to the manager, and well, the main, main, main manager is away until Tuesday. Well, can you make any decision? Not till then. Thankfully, you don't have to go any higher than Jesus, because Jesus has the name above every name, and you have access to him now. Hallelujah. So, he doubles down. Jesus is in charge of everything. But look, but at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I love this. Isn't that right? We don't yet see it. Uh, watch the news. Doesn't matter which news organization you follow. You're going to find some bad news when you watch the news. Am I right? For every one mention of good news, there's 68 mentions of bad news. Bad news sells. Good news doesn't. I mean... Who's going to report the news? Today, 478 elderly people crossed roads without incident. That's not going to make the news. Other things will. But in the midst of this harsh, cruel, brutal world, Jesus reigns now. But it doesn't look like it. Doesn't yet look like it, does it? If we're honest, we watch the news and we can get very depressed. He reigns now, but not visibly. Why is it such a mess? Why is it such a mess if Jesus is in charge? Well, answer that, Pastor. Okay, well, we will. The answer is this. The story of Jesus in this world isn't finished. It's not over. We still await something. And that something is coming. Just as he came first time and fulfilled prophecy, he's coming back a second time to fulfill prophecy. It was said of him he'd be born in Bethlehem. It would be a little town, Bethlehem Ephratah. There are several different Bethlehems. It made very, very clear which Bethlehem it would be. Not Seattle, Washington. Not Belgium in the European nations. It was... A specific place. And he's coming back. He went in clouds. He's returning in clouds. He's returning. Rick Phillips writes this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's quoting verse 8. Not every knee is now bowed before Jesus. Not every tongue confesses him Lord of all. Yet Christ does reign spiritually over this age. He is advancing against his enemies with the sword of the gospel in his mighty hand. He's leading his own out of this present evil age, a people set apart to himself who inherit eternal life even in the midst of a realm of death who belong not to this world but to the world that is yet to come. 
a concept that theologians are very uh, wishing that we embrace and understand is something called the already and the not yet. Have you ever heard of that? We're in the already, a lot of things have happened yet at the same time, not all that will happen has yet happened. So we're in this time when we're at, uh, uh, we've seen a lot since Jesus has come. We've seen so much in the area of redemption. We can understand now our Old Testament because of the new and the arrival of Christ. We've got so much and yet we're still in this present dark world awaiting something and it's coming. But it's not yet here. But it's coming. But it's not yet here. And many people are saying, but it's not yet here. And we have to say, but it's coming. And we know it's coming because he's already come and done what he done the first time that he done it. Brian Borgman said this, we must remember the already is not the not yet. The future may have invaded the present, but the present is not the future. book of Hebrews is a book about faith. We have the great faith chapter, chapter 11. We understand from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And we could equally say we walk by faith and not by what is perceived by the senses. We learn everything we learn from our senses. You shut all five senses down on someone, they've got no ability to learn anything. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't touch, they can't taste. There's nothing by way of information that they can gather. And we've gained all that we've known in this world through the five senses. But the five senses are not the most reliable indicator of all that's taking place in the universe. That's where our Bible comes in to tell us of heavenly and unseen realities. I want to ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe your Bible? If you do you'll believe that just as Jesus fulfilled prophecy first time, he's going to fulfill prophecy a second time when he comes again. And we don't see that yet because we're in this time period between the first and the second coming of Christ. Verse 9. But we see him. Let me ask you, do you see him? Not with your earthly eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Has your heart been open to see the reality of Jesus? Has he stepped off the pages of the Bible and become a reality? You know he's real. You know it. The Holy Spirit has made him real to you. But bear in mind again the three aspects of saving faith. You know the information, that's one and two. The information's given and you know it and you actually believe it. But have you trusted? Do you see him? True faith sees him and sees him ruling and reigning now. Certain aspects of the world to come have broken through into our world, but we're not yet there. We're not there yet. As a little boy, I grew up in a place called Chester in England, three hours away from London in the south. It's hard to believe that three hours marks the difference between the north of the country and the south of the country. But I would often go in the summertime to visit an uncle in a place called Ealing, in London, and I'd often go to, every morning go to see the changing of the guards, G-U-A-R-D-S, not gods, uh, guards, and I wanted to be a, a guard outside Buckingham Palace. That was my desire as a four, five, six-year-old. 
And on the way to London, after about an hour, I'd say, I'd say you know what I'm going to say, are we there yet? <laughs> no, we're not there yet. Well, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. But one day, one day, everything's going to change. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but when Jesus comes back, everything changes. Everything. He's not coming back hoping that people will vote for him, that he gets enough votes to sway society, to be in power for a while till they say, we don't like this anymore. When he comes back as the reigning monarch of the universe, he's coming back to rule and reign forever because that's what he's doing now. He's just showing up to show it. What a day that will be. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Curse will be no more. It changes at his coming. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? amen? So the message is, the not yet is not here yet. But the not yet is more glorious than anything in the here and the now. Hold on. Live in the already, what Christ has already done. Because of his finished work, because of his victory over death and disease and sickness and sin and the devil, you have something now, but there's a not yet aspect to your redemption. Romans 8 speaks of the fact that we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait to be in our glorified bodies. You may look good now, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Praise the Lord. Because of all he's done... He'll do all he said he will do, and everything will be seen to be under his feet. That's the message. We will see it. Christian, you'll see it. You'll see Jesus reigning. So don't lose hope. Don't throw away your confidence. It has great recompense of reward. In the meantime, he's available. He can be called upon, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. 2 Corinthians. Here Paul is writing about the realities of this world and the next. This is not just a hope. It is a hope. Biblical hope is very different from earthly hope. Again, being raised in England and finding out that a couple are preparing for marriage on a certain day. A lot of people hope for good weather on the wedding day. But oftentimes it's a forlorn hope. It doesn't happen. Clouds come, rains come, and it's just amazing when there's a breakthrough of sunshine for the hour and a half needed for the wedding, and everyone's thrilled. What a beautiful day. You, the, the sun came out. Yeah, here you have more of a chance of good sunny weather, right? But that's worldly hope, and that's... Not what's in view when the Bible speaks of hope. Hope about Jesus coming is not, well, we sure hope he will, but he may not. Hope is a certain knowledge of what will take place. And Jesus rules the world to come. Take that, Mr. King, Mr. Despot, Mr. President, Mr. whoever you are. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and one day you will give an account to him. He rules, you don't. Your rule is temporary, his is eternal. Christian, fix your sight on the unseen or the things that are not yet seen. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 16. 
I used to read this verse as a teenager and not understand it. Now I do. So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away. No, I didn't understand that. Look in the mirror now and you ask, is it animal, vegetable or mineral? Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in us. Look at this. Paul, having suffered all kinds of arduous sufferings, shipwrecked and pummeled from head to toe, beaten with rods and stoned. He called it light affliction. For this light, momentary affliction. Oh, how can you say it's light, Paul? Because it's momentary. It's just this world. It's just this world. It's just momentary. All that you and I are going through is just momentary. Well, that's easy for you to say. It's, it's God who's saying it. God is saying through Paul, what you're going through now is momentary. But it's preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Can you see the contrast, the momentary and the internal? Wow, what do you and I go through? Yet, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't say all comparison. You have to say all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen. There you go. Look at the things that are seen. You're not going to see this. But to the things that are unseen. You ever read this and thought, what? What are you saying, Paul? I can see the problems. Yeah, don't look at it. Uh, uh, what? I'm looking at the seat. Yeah, 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 don't look there. Where should I look, Paul? Uh, to the unseen. But I can't see them. How can I see what is unseen? The only way you can do it is by faith. Focus your eyes on the unseen. That doesn't sound like good business advice. You go to the business conference and what are they telling you to do? Um, concentrate on what you can't see. But that's the message for the Christian. Don't look here, look there. Fix your thoughts there. Four, here's the reason why. Whenever you see a four, it's because this is now the conclusion. The things that are seen are transient, subject to change, like plane flight schedules, doctor appointments. Get a, get a, get a call from a doctor, I can't meet with you tomorrow, something's happened. You think it's going to be for sure, it doesn't happen. Everything you see, everything of your senses is subject to change. Heaven and earth, that's everything, will pass away. That means it's subject to change. My word will not pass away. It's eternal. For the things that are seen, everything you've ever observed with your senses is temporal. The chair you're sitting on, temporal. The car you drive, temporal. The riches you have in this world, temporal. What does it profit if you gain the whole world but yet lose your soul? You can't take your... I'll take your riches to heaven. You can send it on ahead. Having treasure in the next world. The things that are seen are transient, temporal, subject to change, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's where you and I are to live. 
Hebrews is a book about faith. Don't throw away your confidence. If you can see something, you actually don't need faith. Faith is the evidence of things, finish it for me, not seen, not perceived by the senses. Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed for more than 50 years, recently wrote this. The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. She gets it. Finally, let's go to 1 John chapter 2, on to the right. 1 John chapter 2. I love you, Lord Jesus. Write these truths on our heart. I'm going to read three verses and then I'm going to close. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And verse 17. Verse 17 actually is the first verse I ever memorized in my Bible. Before I ever memorized John 3.16, it was this one. 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christian, don't throw away your confidence. In this world, there may be persecution. Jesus promised big trouble. But I have overcome the world. Him writer put it this way. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth. We thank you for the glorious gospel how the second person of the Trinity took on the nature of man, the nature of a man, truly God, truly man, born of a virgin, living a pure, sinless life, and then going to a cruel, rugged cross to die in the place of sinners, all those who would ever believe in him. Rising again from the dead the third day, he now sits at the place of all authority in this universe and anyone who repents and believes is saved. Lord, write that gospel truth on our hearts and help us as Christians to look not at this world for to be enamored by this world is to allow ourselves to drift. Bring us back home, Lord. Make us more like your son. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.